Well, as Logan mentioned, my name is the, uh, the Reverend David Alenskis. It sounds very official and everything, but um, I've, I have been attending here at Christ the King uh, in person now for, what, just over six months, and online for about a year before that. So I've, I've gotten to meet many of you, not all of you uh, necessarily, but it's really great to see all of you this evening as we open God's Word. One question, though, I have for the tech people back there. If I walk around a little bit, will, will you still be able to see me or not? Yeah, to take the mic out? Okay, like that? Okay. Because I, uh, I don't know, sometimes I just feel a little, a little confined here in these kinds of spaces. Today is World Mission Sunday, and uh, this is kind of a new thing in the Anglican world. Um, I, you know, hundreds of years ago, they didn't have World Mission Sunday when Thomas Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer. But uh, over the last few years, as, the, um, as some new things have been happening in North American Anglicanism, and they've put together a new lectionary and a new church calendar, what they've done is they've said, you know what, we are going to set aside one Sunday in particular where we talk about global missions. And in large part because this can be something that is very easily overlooked in the life of the church. It can be overlooked in the life of the church for two different reasons. And I've experienced both of these reasons uh, as a parishioner and as a missionary. The first way that we can tend to marginalize global missions is by thinking that mission, mission is something that elite missionary types do, right? That is, it's a professionalization of what mission and missions is all about, and we think about it as these crazy super-Christians who may have extraordinary linguistic abilities or theological capabilities or cultural sensitivities, and they go out and they do that work for us, but it doesn't really impact me. Mission doesn't really have much to do with me as a human being. And I think I think for a lot of people that grew up in North American religion and culture in general, this was the idea that we had of missionaries. Now, some denominations have tried hard to integrate these. I was raised in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which, you know, tries really hard to connect what's happening on the mission field with the local people. But you put so much attention into the life of the, of, of the missionary, and you can elevate that person into being a quasi- angelic apostolic figure that no one can quite measure up to and as a missionary I have to say if you come with that uh, with that mindset and you get onto the mission field you are going to be gravely disappointed as to how you're performing as a missionary because it's impossible to live up to there's another way too that we can tend to marginalize mission in the life of the church especially global mission and that is by making everything mission okay uh, now this has been a recent trend um, since I was ordained in 2009. It was after I was ordained that all of a sudden mission became the buzzword. And in, in mainline and post-mainline circles, it was often posed as, well, you have missional churches on the one hand, and you have maintenance churches on the other hand, which was a useful distinction. The distinction being that maintenance churches are just trying to keep the lights on. They're just trying to pay the bills and continue as an institution, and the leaders are just making sure that things keep running. Whereas missional churches were those that said, you know what, there are needs in our community and we have a purpose. You know, think Rick Warren's purpose-driven life. Well, this was a purpose-driven church and we need to grab hold of the fact that we as a church have a mission, which, good on that movement. And this kind of, as a fad often does, it had its day. Discipleship was the next kind of faddish thing that took over after it. But the churches which embraced mission 
and I experienced this as a missionary trying to raise support, were often the ones that were least likely to invite a missionary to come and speak to them. Which is interesting, right? That churches that said, you know what, we are all about mission. What they really meant when they said was they were all about mission was that we are all about our priorities and what we think God has called us to do here, but we are not necessarily looking outside of our own, the scope of our own ministries to what the Lord might be doing beyond them. So where does that leave us? Those are just two scenarios that I've found often in my ministry that I'm bumping up against as a missionary. The, the over-professionalization of mission and also the, the act of making mission just mundane and everything else that we're doing. I think what our reading this afternoon does is it highlights once again for us that mission is both deeper and broader and also wider than either of these two scenarios can, can hope to give us. That mission, as God understands it, is fundamentally bound up in the commission that Jesus has given his church, and that means that it is bound up in his person and in his mission. What we read from this evening is the Great Commission as interpreted by John. Now, we are used to, when in the church, when we talk about the Great Commission, the, where we usually go is Matthew 28, or it's Acts chapter 1. We either go to Jesus telling his disciples to go, you know, to all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As a missionary, I had that thing memorized because we talked about it every church we went to, right? <laughs> but that's the one we usually go to. Or if not that one, we go to Acts 1, chapter 8, which, what does that say? It says, you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus talking to his disciples. This isn't the necessarily the passage that we first go to when we think about the Great Commission. But it is John's description of the Great Commission now, it has some differences, obviously, and these differences can tend to worry people who are, you know, scrutinizing and trying to harmonize these passages. When Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew or in Acts, he's speaking at his ascension, right? It's 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus is ascending up to heaven. I just hit the music stand here. <laughs> but he's ascending up to heaven, and he is giving his last instructions to his disciples before he departs from their view, and before the angels come down and says, why are you looking up into heaven? He's going to come right back. Don't worry about it. John places the Great Commission at the day of resurrection, right there in the evening, as Jesus shows himself to his disciples, to Peter and to James and to John and Philip and all the rest of them, for the first time since he's been raised from the dead. Now, does that mean that there were two great commissions? Or that John is trying to compact into one narrative things that happened in different places at different times? We can't necessarily know for certain. My own suspicion is that this is its own thing. Apart from what Jesus does on the Mount of Ascension as he's giving the great commission in Matthew, I suspect that Jesus also told them what he was doing on the evening of his resurrection. It's possible, I think it's likely, that in those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus may have actually been talking about the Great Commission a whole lot. I know, it, you know, what else are you going to talk about in those 40 days? 
like, who won the Super Bowl? Or, I mean, like, what, what else would Jesus have been talking about with his disciples apart from here is the mission going forward? And whether you're looking at Matthew and Luke, which have their eye on the ascension, or whether you're looking at John, who has his eye on the resurrection, all of the gospel writers want us to take away the, from this the fact that Jesus' mission and our mission are bound up together. In John, we see, for instance, that Jesus is not only the pattern of the mission and the empowerer of the mission and the peacemaker of the mission, but he is the one who has come and on his very first day as a resurrected man has given this instruction to his disciples as to this is what the mission and the calling is and it is time for you to get on board with it. I think what we can take away from this passage in a way that is going to challenge the mindsets in which we have been accustomed to marginalize mission, I think that we could safely say from what we've read today from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, that Christ's resurrection is what, what connects his mission and ours. Let me say that again. Christ's resurrection is what connects our mission and his. I think I just switched that around there, but it's the same idea. John wants us to say, you know what? From the moment that he rose from the dead, from the moment that there was a new thing going on that had never happened before in the life of the world, not even in Lazarus or the miracles of Elijah or the, or the, you know, the, 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 the girl who was raised at Nain, even those people who died and Jesus brought them back to life, they died again. But here, as Jesus has died and risen and will never die again, and as he has come into a new reality, as he has now taken on the image of the man from heaven rather than the man from dust, as Jesus has entered into his glory, that is what connects what Jesus was doing in his mission with us. kind of used to morning church, so I keep wanting to say this morning. The question I want to ask is, well then, how does this, how do they connect? How does the resurrection of Jesus and the mission that he has and that he has for us, how do these, how does mission and resurrection connect? And what I want to do for the rest of my time this evening is I want to talk about two different ways in which they connect, two different lessons that we can draw from that. And I'm going to be focusing about mission in general, about Jesus' mission to the church. Jesus' mission to us. Jesus' mission for himself in general, without necessarily talking about the foreign missionary-type people that go off onto the mission field. And then, as a conclusion, I want to take some of those insights, and I want to, I want to apply them to what we can take away about foreign missions. Now, the purpose of this sermon is not to try and get you all to be foreign missionaries at this point, okay? If that happens... Well, that's just the Holy Spirit, okay? <laughs> Some of you may take away something like that from this message. And I, can, I, I am praying that that happens. But that isn't the main thing that I want us to do. I want us to be able to see the connection and begin to experience the connection between Christ, his resurrection, and his mission that he has for us. So my first point out of two. The first point is that there is no resurrection apart from mission. Let me say that again. There is no resurrection apart from mission. Now, the, where I'm going with this actually speaks to that first problem that I talked about earlier. This idea that mission is something that is for professionals and for missionaries. Because if there is no resurrection, 
apart from mission, that means that if we have experienced the resurrection of Christ, I'm going to come back to this, I want to make sure I underline it right now. If we have experienced in any way the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that makes us participants in his mission. That means that we have a part in what he is doing in this world as his own mission from the Father. Now, John has, been, has talked incessantly throughout his gospel about the mission that God the Father has sent him on. Interestingly enough, right? God has sent Jesus on this mission. In John chapter 17, Jesus brings it up as he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, you have sent me into this world, and you have given me a task, a job in order to do, and now that I have done it, now that I have done this, I am going back to you, and I want you to glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is saying, there is something that you have sent me into this world to do. What does Jesus say? He says, what, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This word sending is the same idea, the same message, the same concept of that of missions. You could think of Jesus, then, as the first missionary. Sent not from North America to Timbuktu, but the first missionary sent from heaven to earth on behalf of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as the missionary from heaven, to make his Father's will known, to be his Father's face in this world, to make his Father's will happen, and all in order to do what? To redeem you and me. This is the mission that he has received. This is the mission that was guiding his own teaching and his ministry. This is why he came into the world. This is why Jesus went around healing the sick and opening the eyes of the blind and binding up the legs of the lame. It is why he taught those, those beatitudes that we've been studying and that the Sermon on the Mount that we've been reading through in Matthew chapter 8. It wasn't just because Jesus came and, well, you know, he felt like sharing a little bit of wisdom before he you know, did his, you know, whatever he had to do here on earth. No, everything that Jesus did here on earth was guided by the mission that his father had sent him. Jesus himself and John says, look, I only do the works that the father has given me to do. These are the things that he has given me to do as a part of this mission. And the mission that Jesus had from his father was fulfilled and summed up as he suffered, as he bore witness, and as he went to die on the cross. This was the mission. The mission was to die for you and for me. The author to the Hebrews in chapter 12 says what? He, that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus understood that there was something waiting for him at the end of this mission, that the mission had a goal and an objective. The goal and the objective was you, and getting you was impossible unless he died and unless he was raised from the dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So that when, on that first evening after which he was raised from the dead, he shows up with his disciples. He is in their midst. Much like God sent him into, into the midst of humanity from heaven and he was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary and he was raised up in this world in our midst. Well, in the midst of them, he suddenly appears, raised from the dead. The other Gospels go into more detail, of course. He eats fish, and he, you know, they do all kinds of things together to prove that he's not a ghost. But here Jesus shows up, and he says, P 
peace be with you. The peace that he says in their midst that evening. That peace, which he has already said, is what the world cannot give. That only he can give is the peace that has been bought with his own flesh and blood. It is the peace that has been bought by his obedience. It is the peace that has been bought as he obeyed and fulfilled the mission that he had been given from his father. And here, in their midst, he says, I have come and I have brought you peace. Peace be with you. And then he does what? He shows them his hands and his side. Now, this does two things. First of all, it shows them who he is. The weird thing about Jesus after his death and after his resurrection is that nobody seems to be able to recognize who he is until he does certain things, right? I don't know if you've noticed this in the Gospels. I may have mentioned this in my last sermon, but if I did, forgive me, I'm going to mention it all over again. When Jesus is risen from the dead, everybody has a hard time recognizing that he's Jesus until... For instance, in the case of Mary Magdalene, he, sa- he does what? He calls her by name. And in that act of calling her by name, she recognizes that it's Jesus. For those disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does it take? It takes a sermon, and it takes breaking bread and pouring out wine. And suddenly, their eyes are open, and they see Jesus for who he is. Later on in the book of John, we're going to see that, for instance, the disciples are out fishing, and it takes Jesus doing the same miracle that it did before, in order for them to recognize him. And John realizes it, and he says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, of course, that over-eager guy, what does he do? He jumps into the lake, and he swims to shore. This, I think, is part of the reason why, on the Mount of Ascension, it says that some of the disciples doubted. Why did they doubt? It was because they weren't sure if it was Jesus or not, until Jesus opened his mouth, and he said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And he gives them that commission. The moment he started giving that commission, they were able to recognize that it was Jesus. But here in the upper room, on that first evening after he was raised from the dead, they recognize him. Why? Because they see in his flesh. They see the nail prints. They see the gouge that the spear had made. That Jesus, even in his glorified, resurrected flesh, even in heaven as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, standing there at the throne of God, Jesus bears in his body, even now, the scars of the mission on which his Father had sent him, because it was a mission of love, because it was a mission of sacrifice, because it was a mission to reconcile you to the Father, because it was a mission to redeem and to rescue lost sinners. So what does he do? He gives his disciples his own mission. The mission, his own mission, was fulfilled in the resurrection. He was given his eternal life because the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead and gave him that reward which had been promised to him if he fulfilled the Father's will, based on, I think, a Christian interpretation of Psalm 40. And so, here he comes bringing a gift of peace. He brings the gift of the Spirit, right? After he's said, peace be with you, and he shows them his hands at his side, he says, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And then he does the weird thing, right? He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is rather strange, but remember that in Greek and in Hebrew and in some, most languages, actually, Latin, that the word for breath and the word for, for spirit are the same word, right? When you respire, 
Same word as spirit, right? Or a similar word to the word of spirit. What he was doing in that moment as he breathed out on them, he was giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't necessarily a Pentecost kind of moment where all of a sudden the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are democratized and poured out on literally all flesh. I think it's more akin to a commissioning or to, to an ordination, but given to the entire body of disciples who are, who are assembled there. This is actually still repeated at Anglican ordinations to this day. When the bishop ordained me back in 2009, he put his hands on my head and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a priest in the Church of Jesus Christ. He says, he said The sins that you forgive, they are forgiven. The sins that you retain, they are retained. And be thou a faithful dispenser of the word and the sacraments. That's still in our ordination ceremony. But here Jesus comes and he gives this commissioning to the entire church. He pours out on them that his spirit. The spirit, for instance, that was hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, at the very dawn of creation. The spirit that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam as he formed him from the clay and put him in the Garden of Eden. The spirit that was breathing over the waters of the Red Sea as God led his people out of Egypt. That spirit that was inspiring his own son. There are three moments in the life of Jesus where the spirit of God is particularly evident. When he was incarnate from the Virgin Mary at his annunciation in Luke chapter 1. At his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And at his resurrection, when, the, when God the Father poured the Holy Spirit into his Son and brought him back from the dead. As Jesus breathes out the Holy Spirit on them and gives them that commission that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, what he is saying is, I am empowering you with the same Holy Spirit that has been empowering me in my ministry. The same Holy Spirit that created this world in the first place is bringing life to you, is bringing purpose to you, and is bringing my mission to you. Because when Jesus says, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, the interesting thing, way that the Greek verbs work, is that he says it not in the sense of, well, the Father sent me and my mission is done. And so now it's up to you. The idea here is that the Father has sent me and my mission is still ongoing. With my resurrection, there is a new thing happening. And yet, nevertheless, this new thing is something in which we are all participating in. Just as you were the goal, as my mission was to bring you, so now your mission is to work along with me and to bring others in. As he says to his disciples earlier in these Gospels, he says, I am going to make you fishers of, fishers of men, people, humanity. I'm going to have you bring in people, just like I have brought you in. What you have seen me do, you are going to do. The works that I have done, you are going to do. And even greater works than these are you going to do. Why? Because Jesus' ministry is still ongoing. And that's why he even gives his disciples his authority. This makes us today very, you know, uncomfortable, especially as Protestant types. What does he do? He gives them the keys of the kingdom, as he says to Peter in, in, in Matthew, right? He says, the sins that you forgive, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive the sins, they are not forgiven. Now, what exactly that means, people have all kinds of ideas about. One thing I think we have to take away is that what Jesus does is he delegates some of his authority. He doesn't give it away, but he does delegate it. He says, you know what? You're joining me on this mission. 
You're joining up with me as I am going and redeeming a people for myself, as I am going and making the bride my own, as I am preparing a kingdom for my Father. I'm including you as a part of this mission. And I'm doing this at the very moment in which I am being raised from the dead. There is no daylight between my resurrection and my mission. Just like as soon as Paul, the Apostle Paul on the road to Emmaus, or not Emmaus, the road to Damascus, sees Jesus and receives the news that Jesus is Lord and that he is demanding Saul's life. At this, that very moment, he also appoints him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Well, in the same way, as Jesus rises from the dead, he comes to his disciples and he says, you know what? It's time for you to get on board with this mission. Because, say it again, there's no resurrection apart from his mission. What this means then is that if Christ's resurrection is yours, so is his mission. This is basic Christianity 101. If you have been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means that his death is yours, and it means that his resurrection is yours. This is one of the big things in baptism, right? Especially, I was baptized in a Baptist church, and of course they do the dunking and everything, right? And in that act of dunking, it symbolizes in many ways the fact that it, when we come to Christ, we are crucified with him, we are killed with him, and drowned, as it were, in that water, and raised to life again by the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is what being a Christian is about, is having a share in the suffering of Christ, in the death of Christ, and in the resurrection of Christ. And if that is true of us, if we have come to Christ and found in him, our life, found in him forgiveness, if we have found in him everything that we need, then that means that we have also found in him a mission that applies not just to the priest, not just to the pastor, not just to the minister, and not just to the missionary. It is a calling and a vocation and a mission that belongs to every single one of us. A mission to be joined like Christ. To hear his voice saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You are the mission, and now you are also the missionary. This means, hey bud, do you go with mommy? Thanks. <laughs> My son, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> what this means, too, is that you are integral to his plan. It means that he is empowering you with that same Holy Spirit for his purposes. And it means that you are also present in his heart. Now, I could keep going here, but I've got a second point that I've got to get to, so let me move on. So just like I said that there is no resurrection apart from mission, I'm also going to suggest that there is no resurrection, or that there is no mission apart from resurrection. I say this because a lot of the people that fell into that second category, remember I said where, where everything becomes mission? Uh, a lot of the people that were swept up into the movement about, you know what, we have to have missional churches. Um, 
a lot of us got really burnt out. The missional movement has a tendency to absorb people and to give them a mission and say, all right, here are your marching orders. This is what God is expecting from every one of us. We've got to put in 110%. We have to be, you know, on fire for Jesus all the time, and we have got to be making these very costly, expensive, time-intensive urban church plants work. Right? It can be, it can be a recipe that, you know, for burnout, for disaster, for sin in the life of, of leadership. It can, it can cause issues. The question becomes, is there life in this missional kind of life? Is there a way to receive from Christ the power of his resurrection as we are going about it? And I think that there is. As we move to the second part of this passage, as we look at Thomas a little bit, not that we're going to forget the first part, but I want us to think about Thomas. One of the things that Thomas recognizes, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this, we always talk about doubting Thomas, but Thomas understood that there is no mission apart from the resurrection. Thomas understood what his calling was. He understood that he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ wasn't actually alive, then, then his vocation was nothing. That he, that, that he was released from his obligations. He also understood that if Jesus was alive, he was entirely obligated to the life of mini- mission and ministry that he had been appointed for. And in fact, it was necessary for him as an apostle to certify with his own eyes and with his own hand the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he could not simply base his opinion on the reports of other people. He was an apostle. That's one of the reasons why Paul is called an apostle of Jesus Christ, because he visibly saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. That is why he is an apostle. Thomas said, look, I'm an apostle who has not seen him yet. And until I do, I cannot get on board with the mission that you guys are on. I realize you guys are all fired up about Jesus and about the fact that he's alive. And that's fantastic. But I need to have the experience of his life. I need to put my fingers in the nail prints. I need to put my hand in his side. I need to see it for myself. And of course, what happens the next week? Jesus shows up again in their midst as all the doors are closed and he says, peace be with you. It's like the whole thing all over again. It's like Jesus just keeps showing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for the last few thousand years. It's pretty great. But here Thomas is in the midst of them and Jesus, knowing where Thomas is at, he singles him out. And I think it wasn't just that Thomas had been doubting. I think Jesus knew that he needed to commission this apostle And make sure that Thomas had everything that he needed to bear faithful witness to him. And so he goes to Thomas and he says, All right, Thomas, it's time to stop being unbelieving. It's time to start believing. Here are my hands. Put your finger in. Look. Woo! You know, I'm sure Jesus did it himself. It would have been fun. Look at my side. Stop disbelieving and believe. And Thomas, to his credit, when he is presented with the evidence and when he has this experience, what does he do? He kneels before him and worships and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus, with these next words, again, it sounds a little bit harsh on Thomas, and I, I, I grant you that. But I think what Jesus is also saying is that, look, 
we can't stop here. There is a mission out there. There are people who are not going to see and yet are going to believe it is time for us to bring the blessing to those other people. It is time. Yes, you are blessed because you've seen, but there are other people who are going to be blessed. And, of course, John rounds out his... his uh, the end of chapter 20 here in the gospel by saying, and you're right, there are a lot of other things that Jesus did, but these have been recorded so that you might believe, and by believing, may have life in his name. The very book of John that you are holding in your hand, that you are reading with your eyes, is testament to the fact that the mission has been happening. But Thomas understood, coming back to my main point here, Thomas understood that you need a resurrection in order for the mission to happen. Without the resurrection, the mission is pointless and it is kaput. First of all, because there's, you know, why go, why go through all of these hoops to be a part of a mission that seems so strange, so bizarre to anyone who hasn't been a part of the mission so far. But then secondly, because you have to have an experience of Jesus and his resurrection and this kind of power in order to be able to do the things that Jesus expects the mission to be able to do. And I think what this means for us today is that we do need to understand what our calling is as well. God has not called us into his mission and then left us to flounder on our own. God has not called us into the mission in order to be doing all of these things by our own efforts and by our own, our own strivings and by our own works and, and by our own imaginations. This is his mission. The main thing that we are called to do is to bear witness. Now, we may not have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands those things concerning the word of life, as John himself will then say in his epistle in John 1, or 1 John 1, verse 1. But we have their reports. We have in Scripture the written witness of what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is and the fact that he is alive. And I will guarantee you that having read the Scriptures and having tasted the powers of the age to come, that the people who are gathered here today are here because in one way or another you have had an experience of the risen Jesus Christ. He has changed your life. He has made a difference. Now, I'm not saying that you have to, you know, feel happy in your heart all the time. I definitely don't. I go through, through seasons of anxiety, dark nights of the soul, whatever you want to call them. It is not always a picnic of happy feelings as a part of the mission. But what it does mean is that having been baptized into Christ, having put your faith and trust in Him, you know Him. It is personal. Just as it was personal, his mission coming and making you his and then commissioning you to go out on his behalf, it is personal, you're coming to Jesus and knowing him. It is not just a knowing that, but it is a knowing whom. And you know in whom you have believed and you are persuaded that he is able to keep that which has been committed until the end. He is able to do the work that he has begun in you. And he is able to do the work that he has given you to do. And one of the greatest experiences in ministry and in mission, and I th think many of you are, who are involved in mission part-time or full-time can back me up on this. One of the best things in the world is when God doesn't just work through you, but he works despite you. And all you have to do is just show up and watch him do it. That is the best experience in the world. In other words, if Christ's mission is ours, 
so is his resurrection. If you say, you know what, I want to be a part of this mission, Jesus is guaranteeing you his presence. He's guaranteeing you his power. Just as you, if you pray for the Holy Spirit, God the Father will send you the Holy Spirit. So if you pray for his life, he is going to give it. If you pray for his light, he is going to give it. If you say, I want to be a part of what you are doing in this world, Jesus, but I need you, he is never going to say no. We can rest in him. We can follow him. And we can depend on him. Because there is no mission without resurrection. So what does this mean for global missions? Just to kind of wrap things up. I do want to take a few minutes to talk about this because it is, it's World Mission Sunday. It's Global Mission Sunday. I want to suggest to you, as we look at this passage and as we think about how the resurrection of Jesus connects his mission and ours. That as he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The resurrection has some interesting things to, to point out about, about global missions in particular. By global missions, I mean in particular those missionaries who aren't necessarily traveling long distances, but who are cross crossing cultural divides. That is, I can get on a plane and travel 2,000 miles away and visit with people that are culturally and linguistically identical to me. Is that a mission? Well, yeah, kind of. But when we think about global missions, I think the issue of culture and the issue of language is much bigger. I remember going to, to Argentina as a, as a missionary in, two, in 2011, and it, was, it wasn't my first time being a missionary, but it was, it was rough. It was, it was very difficult. Um, the, the Spanish in Argentina is a really fun Spanish, I'll just put it that way. It's a fun Spanish, <laughs> for any of you know it very well. And it was, it was tough keeping up with everybody, and it was tough uh, trying to figure out all the different customs and everything. And then after a couple of months of serving there, um, I, I went with some other people from Buenos Aires all the way up to the northern part of Argentina, to, the in, to where the indigenous tribes um, have a ton of Anglican churches. There are like six functional Ar Anglican churches in Buenos Aires, at that time, there were 120 up north with the indigenous people. Not Spanish-speaking. These were indigenous language Anglican churches. It's one of the only areas in Latin America where Anglicanism is the majority uh, denomination and majority religion is, is the Anglican church. And I, I loved my time up there. And, but, you know, obviously it was very different from what I'd been experiencing in Buenos Aires. But I went back to, to Buenos Aires and... And the, uh, the priest that I was working with, he was like, well, so how was it? It must have been really different for you going up to, to, the, to the indigenous um, areas up there. And I said, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, honestly, the hardest thing was just leaving home and coming here to Argentina in the first place. Now, he, unfortunately, I really offended him by saying that, and you can understand why. But on the other hand, it was very true. Leaving home and going to a, any area that's completely different, even if the socioeconomic level is relatively comparable, going to a completely different culture was incredibly stressful and incredibly difficult. I want to suggest to you that, as Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, that the sheer gulf between his reality before his mission here on earth, the reality in which he, as God the Son, lived, which is incompre incomprehensible to us, 
is the greatest of all possible divides to bridge. And one of the things that missionaries here today, even today, uh, in the 21st century, one of the things that I think that we can exhibit is the example of going as far as you can, of crossing as big of a gulf culturally, linguistically, socioeconomically as you possibly can and saying, you know what, we're going to take on that image of Christ and his mission as much as possible so that not only will that have its own effect, but because this is what we as a church are called to do. Now, we're not all called to be able to bridge those cultural divides to that extent. We are all called to model our own ministry and our own life after the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. Not all of us are called to travel to Pakistan, for instance. But those who travel to Pakistan become, in that sense, icons of Christ and of what we as the church in general are called to do. I say that in order for us to appreciate it I, and for also to understand the vocation of a missionary. A missionary is, uh, we like to say in, in, in our own missionary society, deputized. The process of raising support is going around and being deputized by the Church of Jesus Christ to serve as the church's deputies. This is the entire church going in that person of the missionary um, to Pakistan or to Thailand or to Chile or wherever it is. That person is going, embodying in themselves, in some sense, the church, because they are an extreme case of what it means to be like Christ and becoming like his, a missionary like him. So I want to suggest that. Um, not that that makes missionaries any better or any worse, but what it means is I think that we can see things in the life and the ministry of missionaries that cross cultures and divides like that that are hard to see otherwise. Secondly, I think one of, one of the things that we can learn from missions and from missionaries is, is that in, when it comes to joining with Jesus in this kind of mission, tactical efforts are often much better than strategic ones. Now, I say this as a North American who loves to think up strategies— Right? Think up big picture ways to kind of, you know, we're, we're going to use this program, or we're going to get these people involved, we're going to, you know, we're going to try and arrange things so that we can have the greatest footprint and the greatest impact in the communities and in the lives of people that we want to be able to have. And I have known some ministers and some missionaries who have been tremendous when it comes to strategy. And strategy is not unimportant. But I'm going to say as a missionary, in my experience, that tactics are much more important. That is, how we actually minister to people and relate to them is far more important. Strategies can be blown up in a second. Look, for instance, at what COVID's done. I mean, every church had a strategy for how they thought 2020 was going to go and what happened to their strategic plan. Blown out of the water. The question became, during the pandemic, all right, how are you actually going to show love? How are you actually going to worship together? How are you actually going to minister and meet the needs of the people that you have been called to? Does that involve a change in strategy? Sure. But what it doesn't involve so much is a change in how you relate to people one-on-one -on -one as people. That is, if mission is personal, and if the resurrection is important, then no matter what happens, no matter what life throws your way, no matter how it seems like the forces of, of earth and hell are conspiring against you, nevertheless, 
God is going to show up in amazing and surprising ways that may confound our strategies, and yet our efforts to be like Christ and to show in our own selves and in our own persons His witness are going to have tremendous fruitful impact even when everything else seems to be going wrong. And I, as I talk to missionaries, that is over and over and over again the story that we are often telling. The fact that we end up going to places thinking that we're going to be doing one thing and what do we end up doing? Something completely different. Most of the time, I now tell short-term missionaries, or short-term mission teams that want to come, they say, well, what should we be doing? I'm like, well, I mean, we can plan some things out, but you may be doing something completely different. Because when you come here, the doors may open for something different, and we have to move in a different direction. And this leads me to my final point, is that when it comes to missions, and this is true for missionaries, and this is true even if you're not a missionary, if you're not called to go as a missionary to another country, but you are called to support that missionary work, is that missions is always personal. It's not enough to throw money at missionaries. Not that we won't say, you know, not, not that we're going to turn you down or something, but, but it's not enough to simply say, you know what, I gave my gift to the church or I gave my gift to the missionaries and, you know, they're going to go off and do their thing. The resurrection was personal. Christ's mission in this world was personal. The mission of the church is personal and our involvement as a church, as believers, as, as inhabitants of North America or as people that go as missionaries, this thing is personal. And I encourage you to develop personal relationships with missionaries. I encourage you to go, even in a short-term capacity, to get to develop personal relationships with the people that they are ministering to. And to remember that this is not about principles primarily. This is not about, this is not about scoring points in terms of theology or in terms of institutions. This is about people. This is about lives. These are about the people for whom Christ has died. And the more that you can invest yourself personally in people beyond movements and ideas and institutions i think the more you're going to be connecting with the heart of what jesus is telling his disciples here and so we give all of these things up to god we ask him to take care of this church's mission our own missionaries that we support the people that we know and love who are dedicated in these ways and i want to encourage you all to put it before the lord how he might be opening up your lives and your hearts um, to head in this direction even more. Amen.